Hello, welcome to another episode of Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Sean Spear. I'm a Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute, and I have with me today Dr. Sean Waitley, who, amongst other things, is a Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute with a particular focus on healthcare policy. Thanks for joining me, Sean. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Sean. Maybe just for our listeners, before we get started, why don't you just tell them a bit about yourself? You come with such a fascinating combination of theoretical, practical, medical, and public policy experience. And and this extraordinary combination is one of the reasons that we're so proud to have you involved uh, in our healthcare work at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Well, thanks so much, Sean. That's awfully kind of you to say all that. Really, I'm just a clinician, uh, frontline doc who got involved with trying to figure out how to solve problems on a bigger scale than just one patient at a time. And so inevitably, when you start thinking about, you know, why is the system the way it is? Couldn't it be done better? You get dragged into leadership. And so that's basically how I went from the bedside as an eMERGE doc, just north of Toronto, a very large department, into chief and medical director role, physician leader role. And then it just spirals from there. You get involved in regional committees, provincial committees, uh, national committees, and you sit on different boards. And so I've had the opportunity to be at a number of different tables. And you realize very quickly that it's the ideas that go into the decisions that are made that are really important and really exciting. And so you you just kind of get infected and you can't stop thinking about it. Well, we're grateful that your infection has brought you to the McDonald-Laurie Institute, where you're, you're doing tremendous work, as I say, bringing this unique perspective to bear. Uh, on the question of healthcare reform and how to deliver a, a better healthcare system for Canadians. We thought we would have a conversation with you today in light of a recent poll produced by Abacus, a polling company based in Ottawa, which finds that just over a third of Canadians have placed healthcare issues in healthcare policy at the top of uh, the, the issue set that will impact their, their voting behavior in the, in the forthcoming election campaign. In recent uh, election cycles, healthcare hasn't loomed as large for a whole host of reasons, including, of course, the global economic recession and, and so on. But it's fascinating to see Canadians placing such an emphasis on healthcare in the lead up to the election. And, and maybe for the first time in some time, we'll have a real um, battle of ideas on different aspects or different visions for healthcare system. And it seems to me the pharmacare debate may be uh, the catalyst for that kind of discussion. And, and so that's why we're so glad to, to have you with us, Sean. Maybe just uh, your comment or observation on the extent to which Canadian voters are placing healthcare near the top of their priority in advance of the campaign and, and what you think that signals. Yeah, no, I, I'm very hopeful for sure. I think one of the hardest parts about this particular topic area is that on the one hand, people value healthcare very highly in Canada, and Canadians tend to be quite thankful overall, especially our sickest patients. They're very thankful for the care they receive, and they're just grateful that they got their surgery. They're grateful to be alive. They, they're just generally a thankful bunch. And unfortunately, or or fortunately, only a small portion of Canadians ever need acute care. So they're really serious types of care. And and so 96% of us don't ever have to use the, the serious services that we think of when we think of uh, healthcare, you know, trauma care, major surgeries, transplant care. And so we tend to ride on this idea that it's always going to be there for us when we need it. And I think the first step in getting this at the front of people's minds when they're making decisions 
especially around an election time, is to realize that there are some great opportunities to improve what we're offering Canadians. You know, starting with wait times, integration of care, coordination, you can talk about pharmacare, any number of policy issues, but it, it, it won't get going unless people realize that, wow, we're not doing as well as maybe we thought we were. If I could just ask you to elaborate on that final point, I think before we get into discussion of reform and, and how different types of reforms may manifest themselves, I think of, of, uh, the first order of business is to establish how we're doing. That is to say, how our system's performing, because, well, um, it, it performs well in certain areas. It lags in others. And, and I think part of your work, Sean, with McDonald-Law Institute and in other forums, and, and of course, uh, my work with the Institute is challenging policymakers and even challenging Canadians that we can and ought to expect better and more from our system and that achieving better outcomes doesn't necessarily mean harming some of the aspects of the system that Canadians consistently tell us are, are non-negotiable for them, particularly um, universalities. But do you want to just give us, paint a bit of a picture on where the system performs well and where the system is uh, underperforming before we get into a discussion about how we can get at some of the challenges? Yeah, no, I'd love to. And, and I really agree with you, Sean, by starting with uh, what's, what's good. What's good about Canadian healthcare? We should start with an appreciative uh, inquiry approach, I think. Um, no question, we deserved our reputation in the 1970s as the best healthcare system in the world. Uh, we had far too many beds for the people that needed them. And uh, really, if as a, as a physician, if you saw a patient who needed a surgery, you never, ever thought twice about, you know, do we have a bed in the hospital for this patient with their broken hip or whatever. So clear patient needs got treatment right away. And uh, that was the case in the 1970s. But as you know, funding was on a 50-50 basis with the federal government at that point, and uh, costs were going up very, very quickly. Now, sometime between the 1970s and the last five, even 10 years, um, things have changed. And so our ranking, no matter what lens you use, whether it's wait times, costs, efficiency, access, integration, equity, no matter what lens you use, most international comparisons don't rank us as favorably as we were certainly in the 1970s. And so much so that even prominent politicians are coming out and saying, you know, it's a myth that Canada now has, you know, that Canada has the best healthcare system in the world. And that's what uh, Jane Philpott, then Federal Minister of Health, said in 2017. I mean, even the CBC wrote an article by Neil MacDonald, and he, he made the comment that our system is somewhat corrupt in the sense that if you have a, a connection inside the system, or you know someone, or you're articulate or educated, you're going to get better care than the person who doesn't. And when we talk about better care, usually Canadians are thinking about wait times. And so how long does it take for me to get care? Now, in fairness, Canada does very well when it comes to trauma care. So if you are uh, hit by a truck and, you know, God forbid you're, you know, languishing on the side of the road somewhere, you're going to be scooped up by a helicopter and taken to a trauma center and get really, really good care. Uh, same thing applies to a lot of cancer uh, care. So once you actually have a diagnosis and you're in, you're in the system now getting treatment, getting, uh, uh, you know, you're connected with a cancer center, uh, you're getting surgery if you need it. Uh, the system works quite well. The place where it falls down is in the sorting out of does this person really need care right at this moment 
or are there symptoms, you know, can we let them wait for a bit? So inevitably, when you have first dollar coverage, which just means that you go in and you get care, you never pull out your wallet or your credit card or anything. That's what first dollar coverage means. Inevitably, when you have a system like that, you have to figure out a way to ration the amount of services you provide. And the way that happens in Canada is we ration it with wait times. And so that we could talk more about wait times if you want, but you you opened you gave me a wide open in for invitation there. I could talk about that question for an hour. No, but I, I'm glad that you. I just want to emphasize something you said, Don. You use the you use the language of rationing, and there's a tendency I think on the part of single payer proponents to to take offense to that characterization. I, I think. Some would argue that the use of the word rationing is pejorative and, and designed to provoke. But as you say, rationing isn't a, uh, you're, you're, you're not trying to provoke. I mean, it is, rationing is a, a critical part of the system. If uh, in a single pair model, we wanted to ensure that supply and demand were in alignment, the cost would be unsustainable. And so rationing isn't a inadvertent or, or uh, in, unintentional aspect of the system. It is core to how we're able to deliver on a single payer model without without breaking the annual budget of of our provinces. And I would just we'll get into this in a, in a minute. Um, but I would just emphasize that pharmacare proponents don't tend to talk about rationing implicit in their plan for a single payer pharmacare model that would deliver drug insurance at a, a lower cost than private insurance. Implicit in that is a a plan for rationing. They talk about the role of evidence-based decision-making and so on, um, but that's mostly a synonym for uh, some form of rationing. And so I, I think oftentimes people think that wait times are a consequence of inefficiencies or poor management or some other solvable problem, but the truth is rationing is fundamental to the uh, functioning of our single-payer model. Yeah, no, I'm, re I'm really glad you picked up on that and that you didn't uh, get hives over the fact that I use that word. Certainly in, in a European context, if you look at the literature put out uh, by the folks that work in the National Health Service in the UK, uh, rationing is a standard word. It's, it's as, as you said, it's an economic fact of having to provide as much care as you can with a limited amount of resources. But in the Canadian context, that's one of the things that has kind of been the promise, care regardless of your ability to pay. You get what you need no matter what, which opens up a discussion uh, if you wanted to go there. Certainly uh, the health policy folks like to go there. Defining what we mean by demand. Is it truly a need? Who defines medical need? Is it defined by the patient? Is it defined by the doctor versus the medical want versus medical desire? Uh, a lot of people criticize doctors as driving the, the demand for health care. So that's uh, Say's Law, S-A-Y apostrophe S. Say's Law talks about if you know, it's kind of the idea, if you build it, they will come. If you build a new highway, people are going to use the new highway. And so there's another Fellow's law, I can't remember, it starts with an R, but he talks about, you know, a bed created is a bed filled. Now, I, I feel that those laws are a bit more cynical than necessary. Certainly, if we're still throwing out those kind of terms in a situation where people are waiting 259 days for a knee replacement, over 200 days for cataract 
surgery, 218 days for uh, hip replacement in Ontario. We have over 4,300 patients cared for in hallways in Brampton Civic Hospital uh, a year and a half ago, and that was only one hospital. So when you, when you start talking about wait times with those kind of numbers, it, it's, it's a, a little bit, it's hard to see the relevance of the economic argument that, oh, doctors are just driving demand or patients are just asking for frivolous things. I think We've gone so far on the side of trimming things back that we, we really have to wonder, we really have to ask, you know, will care be there for us when we need it or for our loved ones when we need it? Yeah, what, one way to think about it is that the long wait times uh, or those people in hallways are a proof point, are, a, are human evidence of the structural deficit embedded in our model. And, and there are different ways to try to get at that structural deficit. And I, I, single-payer proponents would, I think, to be fair to them, argue that it would require a combination of some institutional changes, but ultimately a, a major fiscal investment in our healthcare system to try to address that structural deficit. And I think you and I and, and others would argue, would recognizing the structural deficit, would say major new public investment not, not only is unaffordable for most, most governments in Canada, but would, would only serve to uh, exacerbate some of, the, some of the inherent problems with the single-payer model. And instead, we would put forward alternative reforms that preserve the principle of universality, but start to get at the structural deficit represented by wait times in hallway medicine in ways that try to take advantage of pricing and uh, other market mechanisms that are deployed in other parts of the, the world that are achieving universality at the same time um, producing better outcomes than Canada is. Yeah, no, I, I'm really glad that you uh, that you tackled that whole issue of structural deficit. You're you're absolutely right. And even before we talk about the deficit and the opportunity to improve our system, I really also like the fact that you highlighted universality. Universality means you know everybody gets care. Everybody can get access to care when they need it. And there are many different ways to achieve universality aside from a single payer government funded and really government managed program. So I think we often conflate the two ideas of single payer plus universality and to assume that the only way for everyone in your population to get care yes. is if the government takes care of everything. And that's that's just not the case. And most countries, uh, developed countries around the world, certainly in OECD, Organization for Economic Development, countries don't use a purely single payer approach. They, they do take a blended approach. But to your point earlier as well about inefficiency and poor management, there are always opportunities to improve what we're doing. And, you know, people talk about savings a lot. How can we trim here and there? The difficulty is that when a program is put in place by a, uh, a government or a, or a central group, first of all, government is fantastic at coming up with ideas. Really, the government uh, policy analysts, policy wonks, you know, econ economists, um, lawyers, the, 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 the brain power embedded in, in government is really quite impressive. 
So, uh, yeah, in, inefficiency and poor management is something that you raised also, Sean, and, and you're absolutely right. There's a great opportunity to uh, tackle that issue. The challenge, as I was saying, with, with a government-run system, government is fantastic at coming up with ideas. Really, they have some of the smartest people in the country often working for them uh, and working with them. And, and certainly the opportunity to be involved at the cutting edge of policy development is just huge and, and wonderful being able to work in a government setting. The challenge is not in the coming up with the ideas. It's not in the idea generation. It's in the gap between the idea generation and implementation. And so government doesn't have the tools that managers have at the front lines to or, you know, at the on the at the bedside, if you will to be able to drive efficiency, align incentives, um, match outputs with inputs, not just create regulations and policies and fund programs or defund programs. So the tools available for government are limited. And, and you get into a whole discussion around the theory of government failure. So everybody likes to talk about the theory of market failure, and it's very well established in the economic literature. There are things that a market simply cannot do for some issue. For example, if you have information asymmetry, power imbalance, that sort of thing, we could talk about that if you want. Maybe just to give people a practical example, you, you know, national defense is frequently cited as an example where government has a, a unique role, that the market case for entrepreneurs or private firms to provide for national defense and national security is so limited that there's a, a, an obvious role for the state to carry out those functions. Yeah, brilliant. Or another example for healthcare would be just given Canada's geography, right? It's very, very difficult to make a case for having five different cutting edge uh, market providers of healthcare battling it out to provide clinical services in Cochrane or Armstrong or, or Churchill, Manitoba. I mean, it just, it can become a little difficult to envision. And that's only one issue where the market Market probably would not function uh, just given some of Canada's geography challenges. But we also need to be honest and upfront about the challenges that government fails. So there, there's a, a well-developed body of literature out there on this notion of the theory of government failure. So just practically, when a political party pours all their energy and effort into a new program or new hospitals, the tendency is not to say that that program, guys, it's really not working. We need to shut it down. The tendency is to say, no, we just need more money. If we just had more money and if it was funded properly, it would actually function the way it was designed. And that speaks to, again, to close the loop to your issue about structural deficit, inefficiency, and poor management. We need to figure out a way to capture the very best of the culling that can happen to programs, the trimming, the efficiency, the drive for excellence that happens on the entrepreneurial side of things, on the business side of things, and match that with the boundary setting and the overall vision that, that a government can bring to, to an industry. That's, that's a great point. Thank you, Sean. And, and maybe just worth emphasizing for, for listeners that uh, we're starting to map out some principles or insights that could guide a healthcare reform agenda. The first thing is to recognize the strength of the system and to protect those. And the reliability of Canadian healthcare in acute or traumatic cases is a, is, is a strength and something we need to preserve. Sean's observation about universality, we've seen consistently in, in polls that this is something of great value to Canadians. And, and I think any healthcare reform agenda 
needs to be rooted in the principle of uh, universality. The recognition of market failure, the extent to which there is needs to be a role for government in ensuring equitable access, similarly important. But then I think the key is, after having established those core insights, how do we create a system that enables the type of decentralized decision-making, a, a role for incentives, all of the things that Sean is, is talking about, and not just talked about, that he's lived. Do you want to just talk, Sean, a bit about your experience in the ER at the hospital that you worked at and, and how, you know, even within the constraints of the single-payer system, you were able to drive real reforms that, I think, give people a sense of where a slightly greater degree of ambition could produce better outcomes without without harming any of those other principles that are uh, that are so um, integral to um, how Canadians do healthcare. Certainly there are huge opportunities to reform. It just takes a ton of energy for people to do it. It feels like you're swimming uh, upstream of the of the flow all around you. So we did a, a massive rework at a, a large emergency department uh, north of Toronto. And I think the reason we started it was because, at least for me, Having worked and lived in the area for, you know, a decade or longer, you get to know people in the community and they would say, oh, I was in your emergency department uh, on the weekend. And I would cringe because I, I knew that the next thing out of their mouth was going to be, and I waited for eight hours or I waited for six hours just to be seen or the waiting room was packed out. You'd never believe it. It, it was always a horror story that they wanted to tell me about. Now, again, they were grateful for the, you know, that they weren't dying and they survived and they got their broken bone fixed or they got treatment for their pneumonia, but it was the coordination of care, the wait times, just the sense of utter chaos that really uh, worried them. And it was a source of embarrassment for me. And I think uh, many other emergency care providers feel the same. We're not proud of the way our system tends to make people wait in the waiting room for hours and hours. And the literature, there's over 400 articles last time I checked that show conclusively that every hour of waiting leads to all sorts of bad outcomes. I mean, everything from death in the case of a bad infection to a senior's ability to go home and actually live independently. So it's really even down to every extra hour of waiting can translate into a measurable decrease in the likelihood of an 80-year-old, for example, being able to go home and live independently again. So wait times are crucial. And, you know, armed with that or motivated by that uh, sense of embarrassment, the sense of a crushing need to do something better, we started to say, um, how can we? And just to talk with our group and say, is this the way, is this what you wanted to do? Is this why you went into training? So nurses, techs, you know, the allied health providers, docs, and just say, is this, is this what we want to be known for? Now, in credit to the then liberal provincial liberal government at the time, they offered some funding for improving wait times. And it was called the pay for results funding in Ontario's emergency departments. And so we actually had $1,000 to to use to start aligning incentives and aligning people's behavior around decreasing wait times. And we were able to do some really radical things like don't ever let people sit in the waiting room ever bring them right in. So bring all the chaos of the waiting room into our nice, neat environments inside of the emergency department. And since that time, actually, new renovations even in downtown Toronto are being built such that people are now including internal waiting rooms so that patients are right against the areas or right up close where everybody is doing their work. So many, you know, simple things like that people would see happening all the time in the restaurant industry, right? Having variable number of staff come in if there's a if there's a big ball game outside of your 
restaurant and everybody gets out at the same time, you know you're going to need three or four more servers. And, and so we're just applying some really common sense things. We were able to make some radical changes, but the radical changes had to start with speaking to people's hearts and saying, are you really proud of the way people end up having to wait in our department? Or, or you know, how does it make you feel when you hear someone had a miscarriage in the waiting room bathroom? You know, how, how would you like it if that was your sister or your, or your uh, close friend? And so starting from there, we were able to make some massive changes. But again, you're swimming upstream. You're going again because every other hospital makes everybody wait in the waiting room. So we're, you're not really any worse than anyone else. So why change? But at the end of the day, certainly the nurses said this. They said, no, this, this is the way we should do it. This is what we do for our privileged patients, right? People who work in the department never sit in the waiting room. People who are famous or, or have political connections or people who are big donors to the foundation of the hospital, they never wait. They, uh, as a past chief of department, I would get calls all the time from the foundation saying, Dr. Watley, Dr. Watley, you know, uh, Mrs. X is in your department. And, and I knew that my response was, okay, I'll call the charge nurse. I want to make sure that that person's got a bed, that they've been seen, that they're not being left to wait in the waiting room. And that's that's just not fair, right? Our, our system is based on the premise that everybody's supposed to get care regardless of their connections or their ability to pay and donate to foundations. So I better stop. I could go on and on. Sorry. No, but it's an important it's, um, tale, I think, of the potential for bottom-up reform. And, and as you say, that took a the commitment at a particular institution. But it's it, me, the lesson is not necessarily that we ought to just try to tinker on the margins within the existing institutional framework, but rather the goal should be to design, uh, to reform and design healthcare policy to enable that kind of bottom-up reform across the country. And, and the, how that reform takes shape uh, will depend on local circumstances and local capacities and so on. But the reason why I the reason why I think the story is so important, Sean, is it, it really emphasizes a point that you made earlier, which is to say reform will ultimately come bottom up. It, 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 for all of the limitations that you described in an earlier answer, it can't be driven uh, bottom down. And one thing that we've written extensively about at the McDonald Laurie Institute in the area of healthcare policy is the, the flaws in Ottawa centric reform. You know, that is, we've had various experiments with Ottawa trying to catalyze reform at the provincial and then by extension, the local level. And those experiences have proven um, unsuccessful because the, the link between Ottawa and you as an emergency doctor north of Toronto is just. It's just too far. And so maybe I'm sensitive of your time. If we could just zero in, uh, Sean, with the remaining time we have, you know, I think one of the obstacles to reform is that people instinctively are conservative. And by that, I mean, they know what they have. I heard someone say recently that they prefer a, known in, a system with known imperfections than an, an unknown system with imperfections. So recognizing the political economy obstacles to reform if you were advising Justin Trudeau or, or Andrew Scheer or Jagan Singh or Elizabeth May or any of the other politicians who will be standing for election in, in October, what is a practical set of incremental steps that, that the federal politicians might take in order to enable the kind of bottom-up reform that we've been discussing? What do you think they could say where they could secure some public buy-in to start to move in the direction that you're describing? So, wow, that, that's a great opportunity. Do we have another 30 minutes for an answer? <laughs> 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 no. 
That's a that's a brilliant uh, question. So I think I would start first before I talk about concrete practical policy changes we could make. I would start first by by talking about ideas and and really ask especially at the federal level what what is their sense of the role of the federal government in, given Canadian uh, federalism our commitment to federalism and what does it mean for them is there an opportunity within our constitution to to completely restructure things and and make the federal government be the the primary leading player in healthcare certainly a lot of people would want that right they call for a federal plan. We just need to demand a plan and we need the federal government to show leadership. But they forget that our whole constitution is based on this idea of not being a homogeneous whole, but rather being a federation of different cultures and groups across Canada that are unique and diverse and each valuable and, and each expert at leading care in their own right. So I think starting, I'd want to know where our federal, our federal leaders uh, hearts and minds were at with that respect. The other thing I'd want to pick their brains on uh, is to find out what they think about the efficiency or the ability, the efficacy, if you will, of a central group of really smart people. We have to grant that these people are, are generally very, very smart people. But even if they were the smartest people in the world, will they ever have enough information and will they ever be smart enough to efficiently allocate resources from a central table, a central boardroom, compared with you know millions of people making decisions uh, on their own based on their own information that they have at the bedside, that they're you know coming to a decision in, in uh, with the support of their nurses and their doctors and their and their family members. Will they be able to arrive at better decisions about how healthcare should look than some really, really smart people in a central position? And so I, I'd want to know where they land on, on those kind of uh, conceptual things. But then moving to, to some practical issues, I, I'd want to talk about, about funding. Uh, and we can get very granular with that. For example, hospital funding. Uh, we're one of the last countries, if not the last country in the world, that still has a large role for block funding. Block funding is where the government gives a hospital a chunk of money, a budget, and says, you know, go out and care for the people in your community. They might increase that budget based on population growth or how the economy's been going, but they say, go out and care for the people in your community. The difficulty with that is that the incentive then for the hospital is to try to make that money go as far as possible by providing the least care possible because more care means more costs and more costs means a greater drain on their budget. At the same time, the physicians in the hospital are being paid very often fee for service. So the more care they provide, the more hips they replace, the more traumas uh, they deal with, uh, the more financial incentive for them, the more income they make. So not only are they driven to care for patients, but they're also financially, their incentives are in line. And then if you look at the allied providers and the nurses, they don't get any more money for seeing more people. And so their incentive is to try to do as good a job or an excellent, you know, just try to go over the top and providing amazing care for each person in front of them because any more patients they see per hour simply increases their risk and, and increases the chance that they might not do as perfect a job as they would 
if they saw fewer. So when you have misaligned incentives, you end up with a chaotic situation. The other thing I would ask our political leaders is to say, how do they vision their role as as a, as leaders? Do they see themselves as referees in the healthcare tournament or do they see themselves as players? And, and how would that look differently? So if a leader of, of Canada thought of him or herself as a player within healthcare, how would they behave? What decisions would they make? What ideas would they offer versus if they saw themselves solidly as referees of the game, um, would they have different ideas or would they be telling those who are the players at, you know, on the ice or on the soccer field how to play the game or would they simply be setting up boundaries? So I, again, I could go on and on about this. A great question and it kind of started with the conceptual, gave a concrete example and then looped back to the conceptual. Mm. But I think we have to start with ideas that, that, that people bring to the table. Well, I, I agree with that. And the only thing I would add, Sean, is, is that the rubber may hit the road on the subject of pharmacare. So we've talked about some of the strengths and, and weaknesses of our single-payer model. What a lot of people don't realize is that it actually only applies to about 45% of overall healthcare spending. That is to say that we have a single-payer model for hospitals and physicians, and then we have a hybrid model for the other 55% or so of our healthcare system, including but not limited to drugs. And there is the growing momentum, particularly amongst progressive or center-left politicians and, and single-payer opponent, to move drug coverage from the hybrid model involving both a mix of public and private into the single-payer part of the ledger. So in other words, our single-payer model would go from limited to physicians and hospitals and now encompass drugs. And there are a host of arguments that are wielded in favor of this shift to, in, in effect, bring drugs into the, the Medicare model and, and won't go into all of them. But it's quite possible that we hear, uh, certainly from Mr. Singh, who's already indicated that he intends to run on such a policy reform, it's quite possible that Mr. Trudeau does the same or, or some variant thereof. And it's not clear to me how the Conservative Party of Canada will choose to engage this question. You know, but one of the things that we've uh, written and talked about is if you agree that there are some of the weaknesses in the single-payer model that we've referred to, and in fact, uh, the, the model as it relates to hospitals and physicians requires reform, it seems counterintuitive that we would take drug coverage, which, as we've written about in various papers and essays and op-eds and so on, is functioning reasonably well with some issues that we would bring drugs into the, in, a, in effect, doubling down on single-payer model, I think is where this some of these issues we've talked about will, as I say, hit the road in the context of the 2019 campaign. And the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, will uh, hope to be part of that discussion, illuminating the, the strengths and weaknesses of these different policy reforms. And, and I think, you know, in so doing, we may, Sean, be walking backwards into a much more fundamental debate about the functioning of a healthcare system in which pharmacare becomes a proxy for uh, a debate about the overall system. Maybe just as a final question to you, if you just want to comment on anything I've just said or the, the, the extent to which we anticipate a possible policy and political debate about pharmacare and how, how Canadians who will be going to the ballot box, at 34% of whom say that healthcare is uh, fundamental to their voting decisions, how they ought to think about uh, pharmacare in general and, and our healthcare system, or pardon me, pharmacare in particular and our healthcare system uh, more generally. Yeah, no, a great opening, Sean. I, 
And I think um, everyone would be in agreement when we talk about the need for patients to get the medications that they require for, for significant medical conditions, especially in those situations where they just cannot afford them at all. And uh, to your point, we already have a number of systems in Ontario, for example, Ontario Drug Benefits Trillium Health Plan. There are a number of, of systems already in place for the, for the people who are very, very poor and, and can't afford their medications at all. And then, as you've also said, you know, most people have some other sort of drug insurance plan, but there is that gap in the middle of some people say 10%, some people say 20% of people who are, they're not covered by one of the provincial plans, they're not covered by an industrial plan or a retail plan, and so they have to make a choice, you know, do I do I purchase my medications or not? So certainly we should address and admit up front that there is an opportunity to improve things. And it's always a question of, do we take that opportunity and immediately apply our favorite paradigm to solve everything all at once? And you mentioned single payer. So just because we have single payer healthcare, does it mean that we need to have single payer Pharmacare, which would mean that it would be illegal for in many provinces, but also there would essentially be no market anymore for retail plans. And that that's the definition of single payer. Is this is single payer is the one payer and the one manager of all of all the medications versus a national insurance plan that operates alongside of the retail plans versus guidelines that perhaps set at the national level for provincial coverage of uh, pharmacare funding or medication funding. So there are different ways to achieve the outcome of making sure people get the care, the medications they need without a reflex jumping into a ideological solutions, which say, no, because there are some people who need medications, therefore we must take a rather extreme position. Certainly my experience in Ontario with OHIP Plus, brought in by the last provincial government, we went from 1.2 million patients uh, under the age of 25 who, who did not have coverage, who got coverage under OHIP Plus. That's a great thing. We should celebrate that. But we also had 2.1 million people who got coverage who already had coverage. And then when you actually unpack what does it mean to get coverage, well, the provincial plan was offering 4,400 different medications, so 4,400 different, 4, different medications on the Ontario Drug Benefits Plan, whereas the average retail plan covers 12 to 14,000 different types of medications. And so certainly you end up with a situation where you have people that are stabilized on their retail plan, and now they need to be switched to a provincial plan, and the provincial plan says, well, you can't have that medication or you need to go for a trial of three to six months on a different medication. So I, I think using a very blunt approach to say, because we have people that could definitely benefit from some assistance, some help on getting medications they need, therefore we need to use the central approach of we're going to have single payer for everyone. It must be national. The, the provinces don't know how to solve this. I think we're making a, a quite a number of presuppositions that maybe aren't necessary and I would argue are, are probably going to lead to some unintended consequences on the part of patients who actually need well, that, these yeah, I, A comprehensive answer, uh, Sean, uh, for which I'm grateful and I'm sure our listeners are as well. As you say, uh, you know, the way that we've sought to engage this issue 
uh, is consistent with really how we've thought about healthcare more generally, which is we want to deliver on the principle of universality. There are different, uh, you know, which is to say um, people have access to the drugs they need. Uh, um, and then the question is, how do we go about achieving the principle of universality? And presently, uh, the mix of public and private insurance that you describe is achieving near universal coverage. But as you say, there is some share of the population that is uninsured or underinsured. And uh, we've sought to understand who those people are and, and what their circumstances are and why they find themselves falling between these cracks. Uh, and we've put forward various proposals to help close the gap to ensure that no one uh, is falling through them. And, and it seems to me a great example of how we can achieve universal coverage, pulling on these different levers in a non-ideological way. And if anything, rather than pulling pharmacare into the single-payer model, I think we ought to be learning um, uh, from the issue of drug insurance and drug coverage and incorporating some of those lessons into, into the broader healthcare system. And hopefully the 2019 election campaign is a catalyst for that kind of dispassionate conversation. And, and, and to the extent that it is, it'll be aided by your insights and, and uh, that you've shared with us today, Sean. So I'm enormously grateful. And on behalf of uh, our listeners, I want to thank you for uh, your ongoing work, both as a clinician and as a um, policy uh, thinker, and forward to a series of papers that you'll be producing uh, with the McDonnell Law Institute on some of the issues we discussed uh, today. So I would, I would encourage listeners to uh, look for those in the coming months and maybe just some, not only to thank Sean, but most importantly, thank you, our listeners. We're grateful uh, that you get, lend us for yours and remain committed to producing high quality um, public policy analysis as part of our Pod Blast Canada podcast. So thank you, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, listeners. And stay tuned for another episode of Pod Blast Canada. 